Well, I really wanted to use those tickets to the game today, but I thought it was more important to be here today. So uh, here we are. Yeah, love, as we start to ask you to do a little, uh, little exercise, um, make a list. Maybe you even want to jot it on your bulletin outline, but, or at least in your mind. Uh, make a list of those things that are sort of hard in your life right now, uh, the trials that you're currently facing in your life. What are those difficult things? Put them in your mind, jot them down. I did this earlier this week as I was looking at the text that we're going to look at today, and, and I have a list. I mean, there's, there's several things on my list that are of the lesser variety, but there are a couple of things that are kind of weighty on my list in terms of hard stuff, trials that I'm experiencing. What's on your list? Might be financial pressures, might be situation at work, um, could be a hard academic semester in front of you, um, a relational thing, concern about a child or a parent. I mean, there's all sorts of things that it could be. Um, maybe it's even being belittled for your faith. Maybe there are those in your life as you're proclaiming Christ or walking with Jesus, they make fun of you. They belittle your faith in Jesus. What's on your list? As you think about that list, um, how do you think about, how do you feel about the things that are on your list? I know for me, I just like to see them gone. I'd like to see them fixed. I'd like to see them done. I'd like to see them over. I like life to be comfortable. I like life to be smooth sailing. How about you? How do you think about the trials that you're facing? Well, today, we're starting a sermon series on the book of James that we've entitled Faith That Works. And uh, right at the start of this book, this book James is going to look at this issue of trials, and he's going to challenge us to have a God-oriented perspective about our trials. James, as, as many of you know, is a very practical book. It, it helps us understand how our faith in Jesus should work out in a lot of different areas of life, uh, issues of speech, uh, prayer. Um, issues of poverty and wealth, in trials and temptations, as well as a number of other issues. Uh, James is not a book about how we work our way to God, how we perform for God. It's a book about how we live now that we know Jesus. It's about faith that works. Genuine faith in Jesus changes us. It changes how we live. Faith that works. And today we're going to see how Faith in Jesus should work out in how we confront and, and navigate the trials that we are experiencing. We're going to spend most of our time in chapter 1, verses 2 through 8, but let me read and comment on verse 1 briefly. It starts off, he says, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings. Now, there are a number of options about who this James could be, um, but the predominant view is that this is James, the brother of Jesus. James, the brother of Jesus, became the, the local leader in the Ch Jerusalem church in the early days. And uh, it makes most sense to understand that that's who this James is. Now, when Jesus was alive, James was not a believer that his brother was indeed the Messiah. But after Jesus' death and resurrection, he became a believer. He became a follower. And it's interesting how he introduces himself here. He doesn't say James, the brother of of our Lord. He says, James, a bondservant of God 
and of the Lord Jesus Christ. He, he understands that his brother, his half-brother, is actually his Lord. And so he writes from that perspective, bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because of, this is written by this James, most believe this is probably the earliest New Testament book writ, written in the middle to late 40s. And so uh, first book of the New Testament. James writes, he says, to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad. And uh, of course, the 12 tribes of Israel no longer existed when they were carried away into exile. Uh, they know the, and, and when they came back, when the, and so who he's writing to is, it's not the literal 12 tribes, but, but he uses that language to express uh, Jewish, he's writing to Jewish Christians who are living outside of Palestine. They have been scattered among the nations. He probably also uses it in a, in a metaphorical sense to refer to the church as the new Israel scattered among the pe- kind of the scattered people of God. And the reality is that's who we are as well, right? We are the scattered people of God. We are not in our home. We, are, we live in this world as exiles. And so like the Jewish Christians of James's day, we too need wisdom to know how to live as the scattered people of God in a place that's not our home. We need to understand a faith that works. And so that's what James is about. We're going to start today looking at how we face trials, which is one of the a key concern in this book. But he starts off, he encourages them and he encourages us to see trials from a God-oriented perspective. Have a God-oriented perspective uh, as we think about our trials. He starts off in verse 2. Consider it all joy, my brethren, my brothers, my sisters, when you encounter various trials. Now, that my brethren, it's, it's a term of affection. And so as we read through this whole book, we, we understand that James writes out of love and care and concern, including this command to consider it all joy when you experience trials of all kinds. He's commanding them, he's commanding us to make a conscious choice, a conscious decision to count our trials as joy, joy. Now, I don't know about you, but my first reaction when I encounter trials is not typically joy. It's, it's anxiety, it's discouragement, it's frustration, it's anger, it's all sorts of things like that. We don't like trials, right? We, we want life to be comfortable. We would rather that our life sails along smoothly. It is natural to feel that way. And so we have to make a choice to do what James is encouraging here. We have to choose to sort of have this mental switch to see trials different than what our normal reaction is. We have to choose to count them as joy. Now, he's not saying you have to feel happy about your trials. Joy and happiness are very different things. Joy is a, is a deep satisfaction in the ways of God. It's something that the Spirit of God produces in us. And so you can be joyful without necessarily being happy. Now, why would he urge us to do this? He does so because trials, what they can produce in our lives, they can bear good fruit in our lives. He says, consider them all joy knowing. We we consider them all joy knowing something. And what we know is that the testing of your faith produces endurance. The testing of your faith can produce endurance. And endurance is a needed virtue in our Christian walk. Endurance is the ability to persevere, to, to stand strong, to hang in there in difficult times. If we're going to finish well the race of the Christian life, we must have endurance. And James is telling us that it's through trials that we learn endurance. It's through trials that endurance is built into 
our lives. So we can count it joy knowing that that's true. And he says that the testing of your faith here, his point isn't that, that trials prove whether your faith is genuine or not. Trials do do that. They can do that. But his point here is that trials are something that God uses to to uh, strengthen our faith. In, in the same way that metal is, is tested, it's refined, and the dross is burned away to strengthen it, so too trials in the life of a believer. James then says this about endurance. He says, And let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Lacking in nothing. I like how the, the NIV says this. It says, Let perseverance finish its work. Let perseverance finish its work. And the finished work of endurance is the development of your character. It's, it's the development of your character. We're to let endurance do this so that our lives will be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And, and the idea of there of perfect is maturity. Um, elsewhere it says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And so there's this idea of we are, we are to strive to be like God in all things. That's the goal of our lives, right? We will never arrive there in this life, but that's the goal. But he's saying endurance helps us grow to this place of maturity, of becoming like our Father. So let it have that result. They may be perfect and complete. And complete is the idea of moral wholeness, moral soundness. And so you be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. In other words, lacking in, in none of the Christ-like virtues, the virtues that we are to put on. It's, it's let endurance have that result, that we would manifest Christ-like virtues. Now, when he says, let endurance have this result, it suggests that it's possible to hinder it. It's possible that, that we can choose not to see trials from a God-oriented vantage point. We can not yield to God in the midst of them, and, and, in, and we, it will not have this work in our lives. And so we have to choose to let endurance have this perfect result. We can miss what God wants to do in our lives through trials. We have to count it as joy. We have to let endurance have its perfect result. And so if you just think about the big picture of what he's saying here, which is pretty counterintuitive in some ways, he's saying, here's the big picture. When we encounter trials, choose, make a decision to switch your mind away from the natural reaction to have a God-oriented perspective, understanding that God wants to use those things to build endurance in your life that if you will let endurance have its result, it's going to grow you. It's going to develop your character. And that's why we can consider it all as joy. Now, as I was meditating on this passage this week, I began to think about one of the trials, one of the harder trials in my life that I've experienced for a number of years. And I can't really share the details other than to say it's a situation that has caused deep concern, uh, you know, sleepless nights, that kind of thing for a number of years. And I think I've really been trusting God with this thing. I've been praying about it. I've been wrestling with God about it. But I don't know that until this week I've ever actually had the thought I should actually count that trial as joy. I just never had thought about that. My focus has simply been on asking God to change the situation as quickly as possible. But I realized this week I need to have a switch of a mindset of of you know, just wanting God to get it over as quickly as possible, but to also to say, God, would you use this in my life? I'm going to trust you, build endurance in my life, shape me, refine me by this. I'm going to count it all as joy. I don't know why I'd never thought about that before. 
How do you think about your trials? How do you think about the things in your life? Are, are you just sort of bearing them with a passive resignation? Is it your focus to escape them as quickly as you can? Is it possible you're maybe even a little bit mad at God because you know as an all-knowing, all-powerful God, he could change it if he wanted to? How are you thinking about your trials? Are you making that mental shift to have a God-oriented perspective about your trials and to count it all joy because you know it's an opportunity to grow in your character? How do you see your trials? I know that some of you, because I've had even some of the conversations I've had this week, are facing scary, painful, um, weighty trials, hard stuff. I mean, the hardest stuff, trials that keep you up at night. So I'm not saying this is easy. It's not. But here's the deal. Whether you count it as joy or not, the trial is still there, right? It doesn't disappear if you decide not to count it as joy. And see, if you don't choose to trust God with your trials, you can, in fact, become embittered at God. And it can lead to a kind of spiritual ruin. You can begin to doubt his goodness. If you go down that road, there's not going to be growth. But if you will hang on to the fact that God is indeed good, that he loves you and he's working good in your lives, if you can choose to count it as joy, even in the most difficult trials, God will use them to grow you, to develop endurance and, and endurance that can have its perfect and complete result in your life. Choose to have a God-oriented perspective about your trials. Now, I'm guessing for most of us, we would say that that's hard to do sometimes. Sometimes it's not so hard. Sometimes it's hard to do. And so what do we do when it's hard? Well, we can ask for wisdom when we struggle to have a God-oriented perspective on trials. Ask. Ask for wisdom. So we're going to look at verses 5 through 8. And I don't know why, but again, I, I have never, I've always just read verses 5 through 8 and the encouragement to ask for wisdom as a standalone encouragement. I've never really connected it to um, counting trials as joy, and yet it is, there is a connection. There is a connection. Verse 5 says, But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. Now, if you have an NIV or English Standard Version, it doesn't translate the connective. There's no but there, but in the New American Standard translates, and there is a connection. I do think this passage speaks widely to any areas where we need wisdom, but it, there is, it is flowing out of this needing to choose to count our trials as joy. And if you lack that, if you lack wisdom to do that, ask. Having a God-oriented perspective on our trials takes wisdom. So if you're able to count it as joy, with your trials, you are walking in wisdom in that area. But, but sometimes we can really struggle to do that. And so ask. Ask for wisdom. And he promises to give it to us. Wisdom is something that Proverbs tells us begins with the fear of the Lord. It's a gift from God that helps us walk rightly in this world. If we have wisdom, we obey God. We have discernment about good and evil. We have skill and understanding in how to live a godly life. 
Now, James, in the way he writes this, he's assuming that we do lack wisdom sometimes. It could be sort of translated, since you lack wisdom. He's, he's understanding that we probably are going to lack wisdom at times. Of course we lack wisdom at times, so we need to, to ask. And ask is a present tense imperative, so the idea is ask and keep on asking. We keep asking for wisdom. We keep looking to God. We keep coming to Him, asking for wisdom. And we can ask with confidence, because we are asking a God who is a giving God. He says he gives generously. He gives graciously. He gives freely. He is a God who gives without reproach. He doesn't belittle you for your weakness. He doesn't look at your merits or demerits when you come and ask for wisdom. He doesn't roll his eyes at you when you come asking for wisdom again. He gives without reproach. He gives generously and without reproach. And so ask, ask, and it will be given. There is a condition though, right? I mean, there's a condition as you go on. We must ask in faith, verse 6. But he must ask in faith without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. The word that James uses for doubt here is, has a sense of a, a divided or a wavering mind. He's talking about a person who wavers between trusting God and not trusting God. This is a person that has not settled the issue on whom he or she will trust. There's this internal conflict, these divi- this divided loyalty. So they're like the surf of the sea. They're up, I believe, I trust they're down, I don't trust. They're up, I believe God, I trust. They're down, I don't trust. They, they just haven't settled the fundamental issue of will I trust God. They waver. And James says, for that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. The person who's not settled the issue of will I trust God, he says he is double-minded. He's, he's of two minds. He trusts God, but he doesn't. And he's unstable in all his ways. That person, James says, cannot expect that he or she will receive anything from the Lord. And so the promise is for wisdom is for the one who asks without any doubting. It's for those who take God at his word. And for those... He promises. He will give it to us. Now, is that saying that that we can never wrestle with any kind of questions or doubt uh, related to God and what he's doing? Is that even possible if we're being honest? You think about the psalmist. Sometimes they express real doubts, right? Real questions when they look at what God is doing. Uh, for instance, Psalm 13, 1, the psalmist writes, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? He's asking real questions, right? God, where are you at? What are you up to? He's expressing honest questions. But by the end of the psalm, he says, But I have trusted in your loving kindness. And so there's an honest doubt and concern about what God is doing. But at the end, the psalmist says, but I do fundamentally trust you. I have trusted in the loving kindness of the Lord. And so the psalmist is like helping us understand that when we wrestle with this, let those wrestlings take us back to considering and contemplating who God is 
He's for us. He's good. He's active, doing good stuff for us. We can trust in his loving kindness. For the psalmist, there's this honest, raw concern and question, but the issue really is settled. He really did trust God. And so James is talking about one who's not really settled that issue, that person, that double-mindedness. Let that person not think he will receive anything from the Lord. And so as we think about this part of the, the text, certainly one application here is ask for wisdom. As you're walking through the trials in your life, ask your God in heaven who loves you, who, who gives freely and graciously without reproach, and he will give you wisdom. He will help you understand how to navigate the trials that you're facing. But if you're going to ask in faith, you need to make this fundamental decision about God. Will you trust him? Will you choose to believe that God is good and that he only has good plans for your life? This issue has to be settled if you're going to be able to ask in faith. At one time or another, I think we all struggle with this question. And sometimes I think we've actually settled the question, but we, we confr- we're confronted with a deeper, harder trial, and, and we have to revisit this question. And, and so I don't know where you're at this morning. You may be at a point where for the first time you have to ch- choose, will I trust that God actually is good? Or you may be in a situation where you, you, you've made that, you believe that, you've settled that, but you're wrestling with it again. That's okay. But we need to settle that issue. Do I trust God? Do I believe he is good? Do I believe that he's working out what is genuinely good in my life through the trials that he is allowing in my life? Sadly, some will conclude that there's no way that God can be good and I'm experiencing this trial. Some will say there's just no way that those two things can hang together and they will walk away from God. Some of you may be like right there. You're on the final straw with God. This passage is encouraging you. This passage is commanding you to consider that thing in your life as hard and as painful as it is, joy. Trust God with it. Know that he wants to use it for good. As hard as that thing is, he wants to use it for good. And you can only do that if you trust God. You can only do that if you have a God-oriented perspective. And, oh, God, I need wisdom. So ask for wisdom. And so how do you trust God when you're facing those kind of trials? How do you possibly join together the idea that a loving God is allowing you to suffer some really hard things? I think when we're asking those kind of questions, the cross is where we go. The cross. That God would send his son into this broken world to suffer and die, to endure the trial that he endured of death on a cross, and and that that God would have his son rise up from the dead to give us new life. That's where we put together suffering, and God really does love us, that, that he, you know, sent his son into the world to suffer and die for us. That's where you go when you wrestle with, is God really for me? Is God really good? So today, we're, we're celebrating the Lord's table. My encouragement to you, wherever you're at, maybe you have made this fundamental, fundamental decision, I do trust God. Let this, in these moments, as you eat the bread and as you drink the, the juice, Be reminded again, God is for you. He loves you. If he did not withhold his son, how will he not also give you all things? 
be reminded of that truth. If you're here this morning and you have never really fundamentally decided, I'm going to trust God, contemplate the cross, contemplate what he did on the cross for you, that he would let his son suffer in that way to experience such a trial to bring about good in your life. Let that help you settle this issue about God is good. He's for you. And he's letting, he, he wants to use the hard stuff in your life to change you and to form you to become more and more like Christ. At faith, we practice open communion, which means if you're a believer in Jesus, uh, whether you're a member or a regular attender here, you're invited to celebrate this with us. We will pass the, the bread first and then the juice. Um, there's allergen-free, gluten-free bread in the center of the, the bread trays if you need that. Um, we would ask that you would wait till each have been, everyone has been served, and then we, we will eat and drink together. And so as the uh, servers come forward, will you pray with me? Father, in these moments, as we reflect on Jesus and what he did for us on the cross, would you renew our belief that we have a God in heaven who is really good, that you are for us even in the most difficult of times? Father, for those who are at that point of of just maybe never really settled that issue, would you, through the work of your Spirit in our hearts today, help us to decide that we believe what the scriptures reveal and what the cross reveals is that you are for us, even in the hard stuff. Would you help us settle that issue today? We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for this reminder now. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.